I want to go ahead and have us dive right into Scripture today. We have a lot to cover in the book of Revelation. We've been uh, going through, if you're here for the first time today, a series in the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 9. And today we're going to be talking about the three woes, and two of those will be the locusts and the horsemen. I'd like you to turn there and we'll begin by reading the passage first. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths, and the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury." The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Father, we come to you today with a terribly sobering passage of Scripture. If it weren't for you and our safe passage through Christ and the knowledge that we have of the rapture and of eternal life, Lord, this passage would be terrifying. And even as it is, God, it's frightening to consider what's coming upon the world. 
And Lord, I pray that You would cause us to live soberly, Father. I pray that we would live with the knowledge ever before us, God, that this world is not our home. But God, You are preparing one for us that will be an eternal home. But in the meantime, we live in a world that is corrupt and that is becoming more and more godless. And Father, I pray that You would cause each man and woman and young person here, including myself, God, to be more devoted to You than ever before, realizing how very short the time is. So we give this time to You. And Holy Spirit, I pray that You would fill my mouth and take take my heart and my lips and use them for Your glory this morning, that I might draw attention to Jesus Christ and accurately describe these events as they are unfolding in this vision that John has shared with us. So we give this time to You and say thank You. For even this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we studied the beginning of the trumpet judgments. We got through the first four. And if you recall, uh, it gets worse. And today is part of what's getting worse. We were told that by the eagle that's flying in the heavens, visible to all mankind, that there are three woes yet to come that are more frightening than anything that has transpired yet. And I don't know about you, but I, as I look at what we've gone through in the last six weeks, it's frightening. It really is what is going to come upon the earth. And yet, things are going to get worse. And we'll discover that today as we talk about this passage. These woes that are coming are a deep state of sorrow and grief that is about to strike the earth. It's going to be a terrible time of judgment, but it's also a time of hope, and I'll tell you why. Some of you who are students of the Bible and want some extra credit homework for the week, I want you to go to the book of Exodus, and I want you to study the, the, uh, the ten plagues of Egypt and that whole scenario. It begins in chapters 8, 7, 8, 9, and continues through 13. That whole section begins to unfold God's purpose in judging the, the earth. We find different aspects of God's judgment. There are many very interesting parallels. I don't have time to go over them this morning, but maybe in the weeks to come I'll have more time. But there are several things that I just want to draw out about the purpose of God's judgment in the, uh, in the plagues of Egypt. The first is that He wanted to free His people from bondage. That was His very first objective, was to get His people released from slavery. His second objective was to punish sin and judge Egypt for their wickedness in having enslaved His people. The third purpose was to demonstrate his supremacy over all other false gods. And if you do a study in the book of Exodus on the ten plagues, each of those plagues is an answer to gods that were worshipped. They worshipped frogs, they worshipped the water of the Nile, they worshipped all of these different things that God sent plagues against to demonstrate his supremacy over every false god. And then his final purpose was to lead people to repentance. Even the people of Israel had wandered from God. And they needed to turn back to God. But not just the people of Israel turned back. Because we know from Scripture that many foreigners, those that were Egyptians, actually went with the people of Israel, having been convinced that God's hand was upon the people of Israel. Now, what's the parallel with the Great Tribulation and the end times? Well, God's purpose in the Great Tribulation is to free and redeem the world from Satan. That's his purpose. He wants to redeem a people for himself. He wants to punish sin and judge the world for its wickedness. And that will certainly take place. 
He wants to demonstrate his supremacy over every other false god. And he certainly will accomplish that. And he wants to lead people to repentance. So God's purpose is not just vengeful, it's not just anger, but God actually has a redemptive plan as a part of these judgments. Or, as we spoke in the weeks before, He would have just annihilated everyone right off the bat. But the sequence of events and these various plagues and terrors that strike the earth are designed for the purpose of escalating it so that people will get the picture and have an opportunity to finally turn, even during the tribulation. And as we spoke in the weeks previous, it will be a terribly difficult thing to turn to God during the tribulation, but more than possible, but likely at the cost of a man or woman's life because they will suffer martyrdom during those difficult times. But the hope, of course, is that though they suffer, they will be redeemed and arrive safely in the kingdom of God at peace forever. So these judgments increase in their severity and today we find in a very frightening way two aspects of these judgments. We're going to be looking at the first and second woe that the eagle warned about in the last part of chapter 8. And John begins this section by explaining again what he is seeing in this heavenly vision. And he talks about this angel, the fifth, who sounded his trumpet And John says when he heard that, he saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. And so John sees the star. It's not like the stars that we've seen in the previous passages in chapter 6 or chapter 8 that are heavenly bodies. This star is different because he assigns this star a personality. This star was given the key and we find that he's he's referred to in a personal pronoun. So this star is not just an inanimate heavenly object that's fallen from the sky, but this star has personality. Now, there have been quite a few guesses on who this star is, and I'll, I'll share a few with you. Some have suggested that this star might be Nero. Some have suggested that it might even be the Word of God. Some have suggested an angel or even Jesus Christ himself. But I don't believe any of these angels or any of these particular uh, people fit the description of this star fallen from heaven. So the question then becomes, what star do we know of biblically that's ever fallen from heaven? Well, there's only one that the Bible refers to, and it's in Isaiah 14:12. The Bible is referring to Satan himself as the fallen angel, the morning star, the son of dawn, who have been cast down to the earth, who once laid low the nations. Sometime shortly after creation, Satan became puffed up. He was an archangel, a cherubim of the highest order of all of God's creation. And somehow in his foolishness and the pride of his heart, because of God exalting him, he believed that he wanted to rule over God himself. And at that point, the Bible says that he was cast down and cast out of heaven and along with him a third of all the angels, which have now become, of course, demons. And we also know that Satan has not only been cast out of heaven, but one day will be actually cast down upon earth. Revelation 12.9 tells us that he will actually be hurled down onto the earth, and demons along with him will be hurled down and confined to the earth. Now, Satan, this fallen star, has been given a certain authority and we find that in the second part of verse 1 this star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss one of the things that you'll note and it's going to come up repeatedly here that I find tremendously encouraging in the midst of a devastating chapter 
is that God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely in control of these unfolding events. It's not like all of a sudden this experiment gets out of hand and goes completely beyond what God can manage. You know, I remember one time as a boy, I was, um, my dad took me to get a haircut. This was in downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma. And sometimes my dad on occasion would forget to pick me up after he dropped me off places. Some, I didn't know if it was intentional or an accident, but I, I'm still here and we made it all the way through high school and everything, so I guess it was an accident. But I got left down there for quite a few hours and I was only five or six years old and, uh, and I got bored and the short of it is, is that there was this big 55-gallon drum leaning up against this very beautiful stucco white building that was about 10 or 15 stories high. And it was just full of paper and trash. And I was just, I was bored to tears after a few hours. And so I was just hanging around the outside of this barbershop. And I, I saw a pack of matches. Well, I, you know enough about me already from the last few sermons to know that I wasn't always such a, a you know, little angelic boy. And uh, oftentimes found myself in trouble of various kinds. And so I started striking a match or two. And that, I, you know, of course I wasn't supposed to strike matches or play with matches, but nobody, nobody was around, so I was doing it. Striking matches, and then, you know, pretty soon one match wasn't enough, and then two wasn't enough, and five wasn't enough, and I was lighting these little torches, you know. And then I decided I'd, I wanted something bigger and more exciting, so I started setting the paper on fire in this, in this 55-gallon drum. And, uh, you know snuff it out real quick, you know, and then light it again and had to get a little bigger and then all of a sudden I couldn't put this thing out. And these flames just shooting up 15, 20 feet up the side of this building and I knew well enough I got to get out of here. So I ran to the other side of the street and watched these un events unfold as people were coming out of buildings and fire alarms were going off and, and just then the, the fire department truck drove up and as, as that was happening my dad drove up on the side of the street I was on. And, you know, he, was, he, he saw everything that was going on, sirens, police cars, and he said, what's happened? What's going on? I said, I don't know. It looks like a fire. <laughs> I didn't have the power to control the events that I had created. But the events that are unfolding in this passage are absolutely in control under the sovereignty of God. The Bible says in each of these cases for these demonic hordes that we're going to be looking at, they were given only so much power. They had limitations on their power. And what makes me so encouraged about that, and you should be encouraged by as well, is that nothing that happens in your life is outside the realm of the sovereignty of God. Some of you on occasion in your life have felt like everything was out of control and God had just let things get too far out of control. And all I can tell you is that God will never let things get out of control in your life. He is always sovereignly orchestrating His purposes. That is a very wonderful thing to know, especially when you're in the midst of some sort of difficulty in your life. But if you call on the Lord and seek Him with all of your heart and put Him first, God will see you through in a very beautiful and remarkable and miraculous way. Now, this angel, or this, I'm sorry, this star, Satan, is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Uh, the shaft just is a, it, somehow, we don't know where it is, we can't see it, it's closed off at this point in history, but somewhere, globally, there's a shaft that goes to an abyss. It's not probably something physical that we can even see, but it's the portway, it's the entryway into the bottomless pit 
called the Abuso. And it's mentioned seven times, uh, this abyss in Revelation. It's also mentioned in Luke 8 where we find the demons of the, uh, the pigs. Remember the Gadarene pigs that uh, were, were filled with demons? And these demons were frightened that they were going to be cast into the Abuso, the abyss. And so they begged to go into this herd of pigs and they did. And of course, anytime demons have control of anything, they absolutely destroy it and wreck it. And of course, that's what happened to the pigs. Romans 10 tells us it's the abode of the dead. And in Revelation 20, we're told that it's the place where Satan will be bound for a thousand years during the reign of Jesus Christ. It's not a pleasant place. It's a place of death. It's a place of demons. It's a place of terror. And this star is given the key to open up this shaft that leads to this abyss. And we're told that having opened it, that smoke came from it like the smoke of a gigantic furnace. And the sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. So there's so much smoke that physically, you know, hasn't the world been through enough already in the plagues that we've seen and the, the cosmic disruptions? And yet now something else has occurred and this, unbeknownst to the world, this key has been given and this shaft has been opened and now they see the effects of it, the initial effects of this gigantic smoke and this furnace-like smoke coming up from this abyss and blackening the skies and blocking out the light of day. Now Joel talks about this, again prophesying these times. He says, I will show you wonders in the heavens and on earth blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, prophetically, we know hundreds and hundreds of years in advance of even the coming of Christ that these times will come. And out of this smoke, we're told that locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And so out of this smoke, these locusts come. Now, the question is, what are these locusts? There are a lot of speculation on it. Some have suggested that they're Russian-made helicopters bristling with weaponry. I mean, some have suggested that they're false doctrines and false teachings. There's a, a hundred different explanations of what these locusts are. And as you know, because I've already been explaining this to you, my position on scriptural uh, prophecy is that you take it for what it says. You take it literally for what it says unless the scripture indicates otherwise. And John is not an idiot. He's a very intelligent man and he's inspired by God. If these were Russian helicopters, he he could have said so by the inspiration of God. He could have explained it in such a way that it would, these, these heavy metallic things would you know, something spinning around on top, I mean, it would have been a much clearer explanation, but I don't believe that John saw Soviet helicopters. Some have suggested maybe that it was some kind of a genetic experiment gone awry in the last days, that, that people were, were working with uh, um, these, these locusts and somehow they turned into these monstrous beings that had all of this power to, to corrupt and to kill and to destroy, but I don't believe that that's the answer either. You know what I believe? I believe that they're locusts out of the smoke that came from the abyss. That's what I believe they are. They're locusts. Now, we don't know what size they are. They might be a little bigger than a regular uh, grasshopper locust that we're familiar with, but I don't see any reason to even believe that. I think these are just about the size of a locust. 
In fact, it was interesting. I almost brought one with me today. I'm not quite sure why, except that I was mowing my lawn. You know, we've only had like... Anybody try to mow their lawn in the last couple of weeks? Oh my gosh. The rain has been incredible. But I found a little window of, of time and I had grasshoppers hopping around on my grass. I never see grasshoppers hopping on my grass. And I thought to myself, has the, has the shaft been opened? No, no I didn't. But I picked one up and I, and I put it in, a, in my kids' little, they had this little insect container just to look at it because I'm, I'm sitting here teaching on this. And it's amazing how God has constructed these locusts. But these locusts, I believe, are nothing more and nothing less than locusts from the pit of hell. But they're not normal locusts. Because the Bible says that they've come down upon the earth. That's normal. But what's not normal is that they've been given the power of scorpions. Now, just in case anybody thinks that this is a different kind of heavenly scorpion, John says scorpions just like you have on earth. Now, we know a little bit about scorpions here on this island. On Kauai, we have a couple of things. We've got scorpions and centipedes. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, when we first were thinking about moving here, and I thought to myself, I was hearing stories about people being bitten in bed by centipedes, and, and some of you I know have been bitten in bed. I've talked with you uh, about, you know, your experience, which is quite wonderful. Thank you for sharing it with me. <laughs> and uh, so you, we know that centipedes are, are generally shy, and, and, you know, they don't really like to, uh, to be found. They, they like dark places. They like to be under, you know, leaves and towels and sheets, things like that. Uh, and we know that scorpions, on the other hand, tend to be, they like drier climates, and so we have those on the west side, but they're very shy. Uh, they don't really, although I have heard a story from uh, a, a brother in this church of a centipede that got cornered and actually reared up on its hind legs like this and charged him. Now, I don't know if it's true or not. I've never... <laughs> I, I couldn't really tell you for sure whether that was a true story, but that's what I've heard. But centipedes and scorpions and things of this nature are generally very shy and, uh, and really don't like people. They try to avoid human contact really at any cost. The other saving grace about centipedes and scorpions is that they're slow, they're landbound, and they really like to be alone. They don't like to have confrontation. So I'm not scared of centipedes anymore. Now, when people come over from the mainland and they hear about centipedes, they're frightened of them. They're just terrified that, that one is going to grab them and bite them and, and you know, put them in a chokehold and their life is going to be ended at that moment. But that doesn't happen. They're very shy and if you want a trick on how to kill a centipede in the fastest way possible, ask my wife. She has got a technique and I won't tell you what it is. You can talk to her later. But... There's something very terrifying about these creatures that is quite different because the ones that John is describing have the stinging power of a scorpion and the mobility of a grasshopper. Have you ever been bombed by a B-52 roach and they, get, they fly at you? Imagine locusts in the virtual millions of millions of millions of millions all over the earth having the power of a scorpion to sting and having the mobility of a grasshopper able to fly. And if it doesn't get worse, they're not shy. In fact, not only are they not shy, but they have one objective, and that is to seek and to find human flesh. Can you imagine? There will be no escaping these locusts. There will be no place to run. There will be no place to hide. You probably will have a tremendously difficult time killing them because as we're going to study in a few minutes... They are fitted with armor. 
They are very powerful, strong, resilient creatures. And they have on their heart and their mind one thing, and that is to inflict torment and punishment upon those who are left on the earth. John tells us that in verse 4 that they were not to harm. Again, they were limited. They were given limitations not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, we know that mostly locusts, the only thing they eat are green things. That's what they eat. The idea of a locust pursuing human life is unheard of. Locusts eat green things and, and they're frightening even at that. There have been many occasions where there have been a, a, a plague of locusts throughout history and, and decimated entire population bases, not because of the green things being eaten, but the result that people died of starvation. And certainly it was the one thing that brought Pharaoh to his knees during the judgments of God, at least temporarily. Now John tells us that these locusts are giving the, given the command that they are allowed only certain permissions. They are not allowed to even touch those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And we've talked about that seal already in uh, Revelation chapter 7. You can look at that in, in your own time if you weren't here previously. But God has placed a seal on those tribulation saints, the 144,000, and I believe quite likely all of the saints who come to Christ during that very difficult period of time. And very much like the book of Exodus where four of the plagues were given and were not to touch the people of Israel, in this case as well, we have another parallel to the book of Exodus that these grasshoppers, these locusts that were given this power to sting and to torment were not given permission to touch even one believer during this period of time. They're also not given permission to kill. We're told that they were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when, a man, when, uh, when it strikes a man. And so we have these locusts who are not given permission to kill, but only to torment. And I'm thinking, oh joy, isn't that wonderful? Five months of living in constant terror... I don't know how many of you have ever been stung by a scorpion. The scorpions that we have here are not as potent as they are in the Middle East. The scorpions in the Middle East are the most potent variety in the world. They're so bad that they leave a man, a full-grown man, in agony for days. There is no remedy for it. There is no medication for it. In fact, if you give someone aspirin or something like that, it only heightens the pain. And so it's something that has to be lived through for at least about a 24-hour period. Often it's accompanied by paralysis. It's not deadly most of the time unless it's an infant or a young person that's stung. But for an adult, it's hardly ever deadly unless there's some other complication or, or, or some sort of a, a reaction. But the fact is, is that it's just terribly painful and there is no relief and the, the point of the sting is not the only point that suffers. The entire body becomes infected and swells and, and is just terribly uncomfortable. It's agonizing. And the people of the earth, I don't believe, are going to be stung just once. I think they're going to be stung over and over and over. But the Bible says that these people will not be allowed to die. They will be in agony for a five-month period. And I have no doubt that during this period, 
every scientist and every, uh, every thinker and every politician is going to be doing everything they can to find a way to eradicate these locusts. But they will be powerless. They will be impotent to do anything to correct this terrifying problem. It's going to be so bad, the scripture says, that men are going to be longing to die. But death will elude them. This word elude is in the present tense. It means that death keeps running away from them. It's not that death eludes them once, but they can't get it ever. They are seeking it. They are in so much pain. Uh, On several occasions when I've had the opportunity to help different people who've been in auto accidents or, or near drownings, I've witnessed men and women both crying out they wanted to die. They were in so much pain. We have examples even in the Bible of Saul who was who was, had been speared through and he was in pain and he wanted to be killed because of the agony. And men and women will be crying out for any way to die possible because they are so uh, overwhelmed by the physical torture of their experience. Some, some, uh, I'm, I'm pretty selective about the movies I go to, but one movie that I thought was pretty good was Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Uh, it's a pretty clean movie for the most part. Anybody see Groundhog Day? It's hilarious. The guy is a total jerk, he's a newscaster, and he's just he's so selfish and so self-absorbed and so self-centered that nobody else on the earth even exists in his mind. And so for some reason, I'm not, I can't quite remember all the, the uh, ins and outs of the story, but on Groundhog Day, he's reporting in this little town about, about the groundhog coming out. And every day he wakes up, it, he has to repeat the day over and over and over. And he gets so sick of living the same day over and over and over that he starts killing himself. He, he shoots himself, he runs in front of a truck, and then he wakes up in the morning again and he has to live the same day again. And in a very similar way, except much more terrifying, is that people are going to long for death. It's hard to imagine that comprehensively the entire globe will be filled with men and women who will long for death. The people at this point, having gone through all the trials and difficulties that we've already uh, uh, examined in Scripture, are going to get to the point where they will have reached their emotional, physical, and spiritual limit. They are going to try to die, but they will not be successful. Like Job, they will long for death that does not come and search for it more than for hidden treasure. But as Scripture says, it will elude them. Quite likely, men and women will cripple themselves and injure themselves significantly, but somehow they won't be able to finish the job. And I really think we have a foretaste, a picture, an initial picture of what hell will be like. Torment forever and ever and ever and yet no escape. Now these locusts are described by John and I'll just go through this briefly. He says they look like horses prepared for battle and they had something like gold crowns on their heads and their faces resembled human faces and they had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth and they had breastplates uh, uh, like those of iron and around and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of horses and chariots rushing into battle and they had tails and stings like scorpions now what does all that mean what's the interpretation of these very mysterious things well let me tell you what it means it means that they look like horses prepared for battle and they had something like gold crowns on their heads and they resembled human faces and they had women's hair and they had lion's teeth and they had this breastplate of iron and I think that's what that means. That's my interpretation. Now the book of Joel, I don't have time to go there right now but I, want, I do want you to look this up on your own. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. A powerful prediction and prophecy of these, various, of these very times that we're looking at. 
And it's a terrifying time. But again, you'll find in the book of Joel that it's also a redemptive time as you look through verses 12 and on that God's purpose in this plague is to bring people to their senses and to repentance. Not to harm them, but to give them life that they might escape the destruction that's coming. Every once in a while, a a hurricane rolls through Florida and the the East Coast. There have been some recently that were very close calls. It could have been very disastrous. We certainly have had our share on this island of hurricanes. And I find it always ironic. There's always a handful of men and women that refuse to leave their property. And they're right on the shore. And the the, the eye of this thing is coming right at them. And invariably, if it hits, they, they lose their lives. And, you know, I think to myself, why? And they're having parties and, the, you know, the film crew's out there. Here's this big party, you know. The, all these college students are having this big party. Oh, we're not leaving, you know. We're going we're gonna to surf the waves as they come in, you know. And, uh, and, of course, many of these people lose their lives. And I'm thinking, why would anyone do this? And in a very similar way, God is forecasting the future and he's telling us what's coming. And he's giving us warning after warning after warning, trying to woo us and trying to encourage us not to be part of the group that die. But still, men and women will refuse and will stand their ground in rejection of Jesus Christ. And of course, we know the the end is that they will suffer. Now, these locusts are, are interesting for another reason. If you look in verse 11... We're told that they have a king. Now this is interesting because in in, uh, Proverbs we're told that locusts don't have a king. Well, this is another difference between these locusts and your traditional run-of-the-mill locusts. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. And we already have identified that angel as Satan, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. And both of these mean destroyer. That's what their interpretation is, is destroyer. We know that, of course, Satan fits this description in John 8:44. We're told that he's a murderer. In John 10:10, we're told that he comes to seek and to kill and destroy. And certainly, this angel from the abyss has that on his mind and heart. And so now, the first of these three woes is passed. It lasts for five months, and there's a moment of breathing space for people, and they think, "Thank God, this plague is finished." But it wasn't because they found a solution. It's because God lifted the plague and set limits on its duration. Now in 13 through 19, John begins to see the next part of this vision. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and John heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. Now we don't know exactly whose voice this is. Again, lots of speculation. My guess is that uh, it goes back to chapter 5 where we have um, the martyred saints crying out from under this golden altar. And for some reason there's a singular voice because in the Greek that's the interpretation. It's not many voices, but it's a singular voice who's crying out. And this voice cries out and I believe it's a representative of these martyred saints. And if this is the case, then John again is emphasizing the effectual nature of the saints' prayer in bringing about the judgment of God. And so this voice cries out and commands this sixth angel who had a trumpet to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so we have four angels who are bound. Now, angels that are in the kingdom of God aren't bound. The only angels that are ever bound are demonic hordes. And so we've got leadership within those hordes of four at the great river Euphrates who have been bound who now will be released. And it's interesting, just a little background on this river Euphrates. This is where the Garden of Eden was located. 
It is also where the first sin was committed. It's where the first lie was told. It's where the first murder took place. It's where the first grave was dug. It's where Nimrod built the Tower of Babel. It's where uh, the future city of Babylon the Great, the city that we will study in chapter 18 and 19 of Revelation, takes place and will be built. It's the place where history began and it's the place where history will end. These angels had been bound and, as Scripture says, had been prepared for this very specific time. If you look in 15, they were kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year. You see, God has a schedule and a plan for eternity. It's not a clock that changes. It's not like He gets mixed up about the time or has a time changer. His watch stops and He has to try to figure out by looking at the sun. None of those things. God knows exactly what time it is. And I, I wish that I had time to talk to you about the prophecies of Christ Because if you look at the prophecies in Daniel of Christ of the 490 years until the coming of Christ to the very day, to the very hour of that prophecy, Jesus Christ rode in on a donkey to the praise and acclamation of the people crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To the very moment, the fulfillment of God's prophecy is absolutely, unquestionably accurate to the minute, to the day, to the hour, to the year. And these four angels have been prepared for this very time. I I can't help but think, not even in my thinking before this moment, but what God has prepared for you in your life. The very hour, the very minute, the very year He knows His purposes and His plans for you. And each one of you have something powerful that God wants to do through your life. Some may have weeks or months or years of of value but many of us only have moments of value where our life and what we have done in obedience to Christ will change the course of history because God's assignment is given to us how important it is that we are ready moment by moment not waiting for the assignment to come before we're right before God but that we're right before God always so when that moment comes we're ready And so they were prepared for this very specific time and I have some scriptures that you can look up on your own there but I don't have time to go over them now. But these angels were given power and authority to kill a third of mankind. So the locusts were only given the power to torment but these were given the power to kill. And then we're given a description of these horses. The horses and the riders that John saw numbered 200 million And again, some have said, oh, that's just figurative, oh, that's just this or that. But John says specifically, I heard their number. So God has given him a knowledge of the exact number. He certainly couldn't have counted all those horses, but God gave him the number. And the horses and the riders that John saw in his vision looked like this. They had breastplates that were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. Now, my interpretation of this verse in terms of what these horses actually represent is this. They had breastplates that were fiery red and dark blue and yellow as sulfur and they had heads of horses that resembled lions and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. You can pay me later for that tremendous interpretation of the Word of God. I think what God says about them is accurate. I think that it's wholly true and I think that that's the proper understanding of these creatures. They are certainly not anything that's 
understandable to us, certainly not anything that, uh, that we've experienced or know, but they have a deadly power, a deadly power within their mouths and also within their tails. We're told that they have like a snake-like head and a snake-like tail that is able to bite and to kill. And so from their mouths, very much as we're going to see in a few weeks of the two witnesses, they have the power to actually breathe fire out and destroy these horses and the horsemen have the power to breathe out and to destroy 200 million and some think that these are angelic beings I don't believe they are I think they're demonic and I think they are given power by God Almighty to inflict this judgment upon the earth and I find it interesting that all that Satan knows how to do is to take what God has made and God has given and destroy with it to twist it and pervert it and use it for destructive purposes. But I also find it very instructive and very amazing that God has sovereignty and rule over these demonic hordes. And He uses them for His purposes. Now, I also find it interesting to know that for those of you that may dabble in the occult at times or know friends that do, how absolutely dangerous it is because when the mask is lifted and when Satan's full intent is made known, his purpose is to destroy and to kill and to wound. But oftentimes in our time and our culture through the various cults and, and false religions that abound is that he draws them in subtly as an angel of light. But one day that, that mask will be taken away and we will see his vengeance and his full force of his fury against mankind and he is going to take down every man, woman, and child that he can into the pit of hell. Now, having seen all this, the world's inhabitants have to be reeling. A third of mankind has been destroyed. Now, we already know that a quarter of mankind in the, in the seal judgments was destroyed. And we know that based on a population base of six billion, that that's one and a half billion people that died in that plague. In this plague, a third more are taken from what's remaining. That's another 1.5 billion people that have lost their lives. That's a total of half the world's population. And that doesn't even take into account the other plagues that don't even mention how many people are dead and have lost their lives. The world has witnessed the mysterious disappearance of millions upon millions upon millions of Christians all over the world globally, which the church refers to as the rapture. They've seen the collapse of world peace and have witnessed multiple environmental disasters. The world has faced terrible wars, famine, death, earthquakes, cosmic disruptions, hail, fire, and blood falling from the sky, all the resources of drinking water turned to blood, the stars falling from the sky, a darkening of all the light resources and sources in the world, locusts that sting like scorpions, and 200 million demonic horsemen who slaughter only those who are unsealed by God. Over half the world's population is gone, and they've heard for themselves firsthand the preaching of the tribulation saints of the 144,000 and of the eagle flying over the meridian of the world so that all can see and hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, you'd think that after all of this, they would take warning and say, God is working. The wrath of God truly has fallen upon the world. But the Bible says that's not the case. They continue to refuse to repent or even to acknowledge God. 
you're going to find if you uh, go through the application notes on your own that God in his sovereignty and he can do whatever he wants oftentimes uses difficulty and tragedy and even harnesses evil in order to accomplish his purposes. But all of it is redemptive to bring man back to the point of salvation that they might receive Christ and be spared a final, torturous, eternal separation from God. In Jeremiah 5.3, the Lord says that He struck them, but they felt no pain. He crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. And that's the condition of the folks that are left, the inhabitants of the earth, in verse 20 to the end of the chapter 21. We're told that they didn't repent of their spiritual sins. They continued in their, in their demon worship. They continued in their idolatry. They, they continued in their moral and ethical sins, in their murders, in their sorceries. It's interesting, just as an aside here, the word sorceries is pharmakia. It has to do with the word we get our word pharmacy from, the dispensing of drugs. And drugs and the occult and sorcery are always connected. And one of the things that we struggle with on this island is drugs among other things. Uh, heroin and speed and pot are rampant on the island. And many people in our, in our church, and some of you sitting here, have struggled with these drugs. And I'm so encouraged to see men and women getting released from these drugs because these drugs give a false sense of power and a false sense of... A, of there's a, almost a, a transition between fantasy and reality. And that is not the place that God wants a man or a woman who is seeking Him and serving Him to be living. And so these people continue in these things and also in immoralities. Uh, means pornea in Greek is pornea where we get our word pornography from. It means sexual immorality of any kind. Any sex outside of marriage, God prohibits. And I, I don't know if anyone here may be struggling with that, but I, I feel led to just take just a brief moment and exhort you to stay away from any kind of sexual immorality. Stay away from pornography, men especially. And I've exhorted you and encouraged you and warned you again and again and again as my brothers and my friends. Do not, do not have internet without some sort of a blocking device to keep pornography out of your life. It is a stumbling block for the men of the church worldwide and it will get worse. And it's having a terrible impact on marriages. And all I can say is that I have modeled this for you and taught you and encouraged you, you need to have a block on your computer and your wife needs to have the password. It is taking marriages down the toilet. It is ruining men and ruining their devotion to God and ruining the fruitfulness that God has planned for their life. Ephesians tells us, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed of any kind because these are improper for God's holy people. And the world will not relent of these immoralities. And finally, John says that they will not repent of their thefts. Crime is going to be rampant. It's interesting to note that the world, as we continue to remove any moral foundation from our society and become amoral, is that we are shocked to find that there is crime and violence that we've never heard of before. People shooting each other. They don't even know each other. Men and women just doing outrageously violent acts against others for absolutely no reason. And we scratch our heads when we wonder why, there's, why these men and women are doing this when we raise them believing there is no God and b believing that 
that man has no value or purpose because we've come out of the slime and that's our greatest value. That the Ten Commandments are not for today. That there are no standards except what's good for me. And it will only worsen. These visions that that John is exposing us to are appalling. They're terrifying and they're frightening. Revelation is a reminder that God's grace will not last forever. We live in a period of grace, but it will not last forever. And I just want to ask you, as Christians, have you really repented of the lifestyle that's in disobedience to God? Have you really given yourself completely to the things of the Lord? My encouragement to you is that why would you wait? Why wouldn't you want to give yourself to something that lasts forever? Why, why would you want to invest more and more of your energy and time and resources in this world? And my encouragement to you is to live for things that last. These things are terrifying, but God's purpose for His people is love and salvation. And He came on a cross, humbled as, a, as an infant in human form, bled and died. He gave Himself completely for you, extending His mercy, offering Himself not pushing himself on anyone. But there will come a time when men and, men and women who refuse and reject him will finally have their ultimate choice ratified by God. And they will be forever separated from him. And I can't tell you how deeply I don't want any of you here to experience that kind of separation from God. And so I encourage you to be busy about the kingdom of God to be busy about winning your friends who will suffer this fate unless someone preaches to them unless they receive this message of life. And I want to close with a, what I believe is a very encouraging scripture from 1 Corinthians. And I, I just want you to close your eyes just for a moment and I want you to receive this from the Lord. Paul is writing to the Corinthians in Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not and will not ever be in vain. Father, we thank you, God, that you give us such hope and encouragement, Father, even as we study these appalling passages, Father, of what's coming. We must say you are just and right in judging. And God, we pray that as long as we have breath and energy and resources and time, God, that you would give us the desire and the power to preach the gospel and to share that no one would be lost, that no one would be absent the opportunity to receive the gift of eternal life and of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And Father, these times that you have predicted are frightening. But God, we know as a church that we will be long gone when these events take place. But we pray even now 
for the world at that time that God, many, many, many millions of men and women would turn their heart over to you and you would soften the hardness of their heart that they might receive life and life eternal. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be busy about your business. God, knowing that nothing will be lost that is done for Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.